Acts chapter 1, what we've been looking at is the restoration of the church that Jesus started. Um, I don't want to be so arrogant and audacious as to say that I know, you know, every other church is wrong and, uh, and I'm here to tell you the, what the real church is. I, I, I don't want to do that, but at the same time, I do want to say, well, per, I, perhaps is a weak way of saying it, we have drifted from our moorings as the church. And we want to look at the scriptural and have an honest, uh, objective look at the scriptural precedent of what the church uh, is and what it's called to be. And look back at the Gospels and what, what did it mean to follow Jesus as we look at the Gospels. And, and here we are looking at the book of Acts, which is the first local church and first organized church after Jesus ascends into heaven. And so there are five things that we're going to kind of pull out of this chapter. I normally don't do this, the cute alliteration of uh, a sermon, uh, but it just so happens that it works out that way. Five things, okay? So here they are. One is the person, the person of the church that Jesus started. The person. The second is the purpose. What is the purpose of the church that Jesus started? Thirdly is the power Fourthly is prayer, and fifthly is pattern. So person, purpose, power, prayer, person. Isn't that cute? And my name is Paul. So Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1, we're looking at the person, the person of the local church. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you'll, you'll understand in a second. Verse 1, the former account, I... Made Who is I? That's Luke, if you don't know. Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke. This is essentially the sequel to that. Luke being the story of Jesus and his earthly life. The book of Acts, the sequel, being the story of the first few years of the entity called the church that kind of took the baton from Jesus and carried out his ministry after he bodily left the earth. So the first, the former account, I, Luke, made, O Theophilus, Theophilus being broken down to mean lover of wisdom, O Theophilus, of all that, say it with me, Jesus. Jesus. When you ask a crowd of this side to say it with me, you don't really hear it. <laughs> o Theophilus, of all that, Jesus began both to do and teach. Jesus. How do we start this book that is the chronicles, the historical testimony of what church is supposed to look like, it all begins with the person of Jesus. Je so if we want to res be restored to the original idea of church, I would dare say it begins with getting back to what is the person of the church. It is all about Jesus. Je let Jesus be the central theme and focus of the church. Why, that may seem obvious. Well, I would dare say that in some churches, we've made it about a preacher. We've made it about a personality. We've made it about good things. We've made it about social justice. Social justice is, I mean, it's, it's justice is all over the scripture, but it's not the central theme and focus. Social justice comes out of Jesus. And, and it only finds its rightful place in the kingdom of God in so much as it's connected to the king. 
So, so social justice, we've made it about doctrine. We've made it about the spiritual gifts. We've made it about all these themes. And I want to say to restore it back, it's got to be what Luke began his testimony with of all that Jesus. He didn't say this is the church. He started with the theme of Jesus in verse 1. Um, the Old Testament, the entirety of the Old Testament, if you can think of it this way, points towards Jesus. It all, it's, the, it's Jesus concealed. It's all prophesying of the coming of the king. The Gospels, which comes after the Old Testament, is all talking about Jesus. It's, t- it's, it's pointing at Jesus. It's declaring Jesus. And the whole New Testament is pointing back to Jesus. And in a sense, Revelations is pointing forward to his return. The whole of the Gospel testimony, the whole of Scriptural testimony is all about Jesus. Well, if that's the case, how much more should the church be? How much should that be the center of our prayers, the center of our preaches, our, our sermons, if you want to say it that way? It, it is the central theme and focus. Tyron Daniel, who leads the NCMI team, puts it this way. You've got, as far as our, the context of our lives and our church being in the context of Jesus, you have my life. And how many of you know and can relate, when you're born, you are born into like this movie, and you're the main character of it. You know what I'm saying? And maturity is simply growing up to where you're no longer the main character. You, other people are your main character. And hopefully as a believer, Jesus is your main character. So you've got my life. And my life, according to scripture, fits into the context of local church. I don't exist unto myself. I exist in a family. I exist in a, in a church. But the church has a context. It fits in the context of the gospel. And as soon as the church is no longer in the context of the gospel or about some other thing, we lose our way. The church is in the context of the gospel, but the gospel is in a context. The gospel, and we can make the gospel all about, as many evangelicals have, how to get to heaven when you die. I want to say there's maybe more to the gospel than just that. The gospel is in the context of the kingdom of God. It's the gospel of the kingdom of God. The good news that Jesus, the king, has come to the earth and we have access to the kingdom now, not just when we die. Now, the kingdom of God is within you, Jesus says. The, but the kingdom of God is in the context of something. Can you guess what it is? The king of that kingdom, Jesus. If you go reverse engineer, the king, the king has a kingdom. And for that kingdom to come, there is the good news of what he did. And for that good news to make its way into the earth, there is a church. But that church needs something to be made up of for it to fulfill its purpose, me and you. You follow what I'm saying? Our life is in the context of Jesus so that we together can partner together to to live in and to spread this gospel so that the kingdom of God can manifest for the sake of the king. Let it be about the context of the kingdom. And so what do we do with this? I would say let's return to making it all about. Who here wants to be a part of the church that Jesus started? Good. We've got three people. That's, that's all it needs, baby. When two or more are gathered. I would say as a first step, let's return to making it all about knowing Jesus and making him known. As simple as that. And it all starts with knowing him. The pursuit of knowing him, which the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4 said, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as dung 
that I might know him. Why did Paul get tortured and beaten and stoned in the process of planting churches? Knowing him. It's, it's, it is the pursuit of the believer. It is the most marvelous ta- uh, pursuit that there is in this world, is to know Jesus. And as you know him, it's just a natural byproduct. You want him to be made known. Because he is good. Good. Oh, oh. So the person, Jesus is the central theme of focus, but there's a purpose as well. Jesus' kingdom manifesting on earth is the purpose of the church. You might even be able to say making him known. Jesus' kingdom manifesting on earth is the purpose of the church. Go back to that first verse again. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began. Began. If he began this, that would suggest he did not complete it. Am I right? He began. Which suggests that when he left, the intention was something would continue. Of all that Jesus began, both, very simply, to do, which is to model, and to teach, which is to show others how. That is the call of the church. To continue in what Jesus started, doing and teaching. Modeling and, and showing others, teaching, teaching others how. Matthew 28, the great commission that Jesus gives to the church upon his departure from this world is all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. That's the, that's the call of the church. Make disciples. How does the kingdom of God spread and come into the earth? How does the kingdom of God, that, that part of it that I have actually grabbed a hold of in my own personal life and I'm walking in, how does it spread and multiply and extend into the earth? By me impacting other people. How does it happen? But, but I'm the one with the microphone, so is it just me that gets to do this? Every single person, go and make disciples. Okay, Jesus, but how do you do that? Well, you, you're not reading it now, but let me just quote it, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. That makes it so easy. How do you make disciples? First of all, you've got to hear Jesus and observe the things that he's showing you to do. And then secondly, as you're actually following Jesus yourself and and abiding in his word and doing the things he's saying, you have the ability to help others to do the same. That's it. We do that in community group. Even this past Thursday, there's things being shared that's edifying and encouraging others. Something that Bob is walking in. Maybe I'm not yet. He's sharing something, and that's encouraging me. It's it's showing one another how to walk in the things that Jesus has commanded to you. Sound simple? Purpose. The ultimate goal of all of that is kingdom come, will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. When the disciples asked Jesus to pray, he didn't just say these words as some nice religious relic of something to like repeat as some kind of chant or something. There is purpose in these words. He literally intends for us to ask for the kingdom to come on earth. Heaven populate earth. And he wouldn't ask us to pray it if it couldn't be done. Well, if that's the if that is the core of the prayer of, of the disciple of Jesus, according to Jesus' instruction, I would say the church should be pursuing the kingdom manifesting. 
How does that happen? Each of us following Jesus and obeying him ourselves and then helping others with what he teaches us. I like simple. Do you? That's it. That is how the church becomes what she's called to be, a manifestation and reflection in the earth of the kingdom of that king. Verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up. So this is important, until the day. So, so here's Luke talking about this former account that he made, which was the account of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Luke, of all that he began to both do and teach, until... Here's a demarcation point, meaning that Luke is referring to two time periods, two, I hesitate to say it, but dispensations in the, in the purpose of God. You've got the time period of Jesus' earthly life until the day that he was taken up. Why is this important? Because you've got what God was doing through Jesus' earthly life, and this Gospel, I mean, excuse me, this book of Acts is talking about a next time period until the day he was taken up. Jesus, the one period of him being in the earth, the next time period of him being out of the earth and leaving behind the church. The time period of, of the gospels of Jesus walking this earth was the Holy Spirit upon a man called Jesus doing the work of God through the person of Jesus. Jesus ascends into heaven, leaves the church. We become the body of Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit to do the work of the Father in the name of Jesus in the earth, in his stead. That may seem grandiose. It is. That may seem far-fetched. Hard for me to even fathom what I just said. It is gospel. We are the body of Christ. As the Father sent me, so I send you, says Jesus. Greater works shall you do because I go to my Father. <laughs> this is the call, is to continue all that Jesus began both to do and teach. We kind of think of the church age as being like kingdom of God part B, you know, Jesus was the real thing, and we kind of, like, struggled to do the best we can. God wants a glorious church, filled with his glory and his presence, manifesting Christ. Not any one of us can do it all on our own, but all of us together can. And so until the day that Jesus was taken up, the church age is the time that Christ continues through the Holy Spirit what he started. Uh, let's continue. After he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them for 40 days, and, listen to this, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So right before Jesus is ascending, he's resurrected from the dead. He's with his disciples for 40 days. He's going to ascend into heaven after those 40 days. During those 40 days, he's speaking to them. Don't you think the subject at hand is probably really important to Jesus? And what did he talk about? The things pertaining to the kingdom. Why? Because you, my disciples, speaking, Jesus speaking, you are now the conduits of the kingdom of heaven into the earth. You are now the vessels, the channels, the means by which what is in heaven comes into the earth. 
You've been watching me for three and a half years. I've been that conduit. I've been that channel. Now I pass the baton on to you. You now have the kingdom of God dwelling inside of you. You are now endued with the power of the Holy Spirit and called to bring that which is in heaven into the earth and to manifest as a testimony to the earth who I am and what my kingdom is. He spoke to them pertaining to the things of the kingdom of, of God. The church is to be a community on earth through which heaven comes and through which Jesus dwells. So what can we do with this? On a practical level, I think there always needs to be a what now to everything in theology and every, every doctrine. What now? I would say one thing is just to tie this into what we heard last week with Minda is if disciples, making disciples is the, is the call of the church, and the context of that call is to bring that which is in the kingdom into the world around us, I would say, one, let's follow Jesus and obey him. You know, as simple as it is from that. But then number two, I would say let's be practicing hospitality. Practicing hospitality. This thing of reaching those who don't yet know Jesus begins with demonstration of love and welcome, welcoming them into your life. And you say, well, if I practice hospitality, whatever that may mean, maybe it's a cookout on my street, maybe it's inviting people into, a, into my house for a meal, maybe it's going out for a coffee with a coworker or whatever. If I start doing that, they're going to see that I'm flawed. I mean, I'm not like perfect. Welcome to the club. He calls us to do this in spite of the fact that we're, we don't yet have it all together. But the very way that we mature and grow is by doing. It's by doing the works of Jesus. It's by reaching out for people in our weakness, in our frailties, in our imperfections, but doing it because he told us to. And I would say, let's be given to hospitality as a first rung. Let's be inviting people who aren't yet following Jesus, who aren't anchored in a church, into our lives so that we can model and ultimately, hopefully, if the opportunity is given, to teach. And when I say teach, I don't mean take authority and speak down to people. I mean serve by giving away what is helpful to us to them. This isn't about authority. This is about serving, right? But, I mean, he gives you authority to do it, to serve. So let's do that, guys. Let's do that. So we've got... The person is Jesus. His purpose is the kingdom of God coming. But tell me if I'm wrong, we probably need power to do the purpose of the person. And that's what comes next. Look at verse 4 with me. Power to do the purpose of the person. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. This promise of the Father. Promise of the Father. This thing that he had said was going to come and there's this prophetic proclamation that something is going to be given from the father which he said um, you have heard from me for John truly baptized with water what is this promise of the father but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now we have two baptisms referred to here 
the baptism of water and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism with water is what one must, should do, according to Jesus, when you place your faith in Jesus, when you become a, a convert, if you will, the, a follower, you make a declaration of who Jesus is, you give him your life, you repent of your sins and give your life to him, be baptized in water as a sign and declaration that you are no longer yours, you belong to him now. You go down and die with, with him that you might come up out of those waters with him resurrected into newness of life. That's wonderful, right? But that's not the only baptism. There's a promise of the Father. You shall, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That suggests to me that even though I was baptized when I became a Christian, there's yet another baptism to be, to be had. And it says, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to, do the, is to have the power to do Christ's ministry. In other words, if we have this purpose from Jesus to extend his kingdom, we've got to have power, supernatural power, to do it. And Jesus himself operated in supernatural power. And if he needed that, surely we need it as well. And he said that it was promised to be given to those who followed him. Now this baptism of the Spirit is shown three times in this book that we're now looking at in the book of Acts. Every single occasion when a person or a group of people are baptized with the Holy Spirit, it is accompanied with supernatural gifts of the Spirit. Now, I know that there's some controversy in the church as to whether the baptism of the Holy Spirit has to be accompanied by spiritual gifts. I would say because all three testimonies show that happening, that would suggest to me that it at least should be the norm, if not always the case. I don't want to argue over that. I just want to say what the Bible says. The very next chapter, we see the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the fulfillment of the words that we just read uh, of Jesus. In Acts, you don't have to go there, but in Acts 2 verse 4, here it is. This is the moment of the promise of the Father. And it said, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. All the, all the disciples who were gathered together in an upper room. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. How did they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit in that moment? They were all simply praying in an upper room together. So you can receive this baptism just by praying. Just by desiring it and asking for it. The second time that we see it happen in the book of Acts is in Acts 1044, uh, Peter, the apostle, is speaking to a Gentile household. The gospel had not yet gone to the Gentiles. Peter's kind of breaking into new territory. He speaks to them, and, and in verse 44 of chapter 10, it says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision, which means Jews, who believed, were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because why? The gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. How do they know? For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So here's this second occasion of the baptism, also accompanying with this time tongues and some kind of um, exuberant praise and worship. How did they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? In this occasion, they heard preaching. I imagine Peter was probably talking about the day of Pentecost. And it stirred faith in them that as a believer of Jesus, this Holy Spirit's supposed to be poured out upon believers, and as they their faith was put in Jesus, they had faith to receive the Holy Spirit. So it's 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Another way, you you can ask in your own prayer life, but another way is you hear preaching, you hear teaching of the word of God and it stirs faith to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And is accompanied in these last two cases by spiritual gifts. And then the third occasion, quickly, Paul talking to some disciples in Ephesus. They had never even heard of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He asked them what baptism they had been baptized in. And in Acts 19.5, it says, when they heard this, they were baptized um, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Those are your three occasions. Every time is accompanied by spiritual gifts, and in that third occasion, they received it by the laying on of hands. So how do we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? We can pray and ask for it. We can be stirred from teaching and preaching. The revelation from God's words stirs faith in our heart to receive it, or sometimes it comes through the laying on of hands from somebody else, and we receive it. And in every time in the scripture, it's accompanied with some kind of spiritual gifts. When I was 19 years old, I speak of college days often. When I was 19 years old, I was in a, uh, a campus ministry. I was green as you come. I, everything was brand new. And uh, I was brand new Christian. Um, this whole church world was so new, I'd been radically converted and it was the end of the school year, freshman year. I'd been in this campus ministry for probably about two or three months. The campus pastor was pouring into my life significantly, meeting with me regularly. It's great, great thing. And at the end of one of the, the sessions that we had, we had weekly meetings, uh, there was an invitation to receive prayer at the end. There, it was uh, the campus ministry there on the campus. And uh, Don, who was the campus pastor, he came up to me because I was up there for prayer. And I'm, you know, kind of opening my palms with my eyes closed, wanting to be prayed for. And he looks at me comes over and he says, uh, and in retrospect, now I realize Don was green as anything as well. (laughs) He didn't know what he was doing, but he looks at me and he says, uh, he says, Paul, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And I I still remember to this day, like what went through my head, what, what is the, I literally had never even heard of that, that expression. And I was like, "Uh, I don't, I don't think so. (laughs) He's like, well, do you want to be? And I'm like, you know, it, with my personality type, I'm like, I've got to know what it is. I got to, you know, you got to show me the scripture and the stuff, and I don't even know what it is. But what came out of my mouth was, yeah. And, and my, my process of, of deduction was baptism of the Holy Spirit. That sounds good. That sounds like something that would be good. I was like, yeah. He's like, okay, well, I'm going to pray for you. Is it okay if I just put my hands upon you? And I was like, sure. And uh, he's like, well, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be praying in other tongues. And I'd heard of that. You know, in my Catholic upbringing, we heard about the Pentecost and all that kind of stuff. I'd heard of that, and I was quite uh, uh, intrigued by that because my sister had, was part of the Catholic youth organization, and she had heard of some people that came and visited the, her youth group, and they were praying in tongues. And I was, like, amazed. Like, like that still happens? Wow. He says, I'm going to be praying in other tongues. Don't be alarmed by that. But you may feel something almost like bubbling up inside of you and like you want to let it out. And he says, so if you do that, don't resist it. Just allow it to come. And if it's just kind of sounds that you just don't try to think about it, don't try to intellectually figure out what you're saying or words, sounds that you're making, just allow what's in you to come out. Okay? And so he... he, 
he prayed over me, and he began to, I mean, he, he was like kind of like boisterous, you know, and, uh, and he later told me that it was the most anointed, like the, he had never prayed for somebody and felt such an anointing of the Holy Spirit. On my side, I felt like a mild sense of the presence of God. It wasn't like that big of a deal. I felt this subtle kind of bubble thing, like what he was talking about, this, this thing. It, it, was, it, it was not like, you know, a rushing mighty wind came through and like sounds and, you know, blew me, you know, and, you know, it was, it was just like a subtle thing. Why am I saying all this? Because I want you to know this, oftentimes this stuff is supernaturally natural and naturally supernatural. And God doesn't always speak in this loud, thundering voice. Sometimes it's this, like with Elijah, it's the, it's the sound, it's, it's a, a still small voice. And it's just to be sensitive to the nuances of the Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to lead you. And so I just kind of opened my mouth and allowed this stuff to come out. And I began to sp- speak or pray in other tongues. The weeks and months following, I began to practice that. And it revolutionized my prayer life. Now, when I don't know what to pray, and put your hand up if you're with me, oftentimes we don't, I just begin to worship God in other tongues and pray in other tongues. And, and I was able to tap into this divine connection. I can't explain it. If you've never experienced it, it's hard to even put it into words. It's almost like a, you know, it's, it's almost like having a cheat sheet in your relationship with God. Anybody ever cheated on a test in high school? It's like, I don't know how to do this, but the Holy Spirit kind of like lets me copy off him. It's like he, praying in tongues just allows you to bypass all of your lack of faith, all of your stuff, and just connect in this intimate space with the Holy Spirit to where the only thing required is just that you yield. Not that you figure it all out, you yield. You just yield yourself to him in that moment. And it edifies yourself. And so what now do we do with this? I would want to say, guys, if we want to seriously, seriously fulfill the call of God and not just be church as usual, surely if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit, we need the Holy Spirit. And if the scripture undoubtedly speaks of this baptism of the Holy Spirit, so much so that Jesus calls it the promise of the Father, surely we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And not just some event that we have when you're a freshman in college in 1997 or whatever, Every day, we need to be being filled, according to the scripture, with the Holy Spirit. To walk in God's purpose today. Can you serve God without it? Absolutely. These Ephesian disciples in Acts 19 were serving Jesus to the best of their ability. But man, give me the cheat sheet. <laughs> give, me, give me the leg up. Give me, give me all the utilities that Christ has ordained for his church. And so I just want to ask us the question, have we been baptized in the Holy Spirit? If not you got three pathways. You can pray and ask in your own personal capacity. Nita, my, my mother-in-law over here, was baptized in the Holy Spirit that way. As a, didn't even know about what the baptism of the Holy Spirit, just was see, searching for more, and she was baptized, began to speak in other tongues. As a young person, like how old were you? College days. We're in, we're in, we're in good fellowship together then. Uh, you can pray and ask. You can, even from the words I just shared, perhaps faith is stirred in you even right now, today, to receive it. Just receive it. And you can have hands laid upon you in prayer, as I did in, in college, and have that. Let's go on to verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Restore the kingdom of God, or the kingdom to Israel. And he said to them, it is not 
It is not for you to know the times or the seasons. Jesus is indicating your question is the wrong question. It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. What are we talking about? We're talking about power. Power to do the purpose of the person. Jesus is talking about authority. That put in his own authority. Here's what your power is not for. Your power is not for obsessing over end times and dates. Your power is not for getting governments and earthly institutions to line up with God's kingdom. It's awesome if that does happen, but let it happen because people in those governments, people in those earthly institutions have discovered Jesus. And Jesus in them transforms their lives. But we don't transform a government. We're not called to transform a, 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 a you know, Starbucks and, and, and make them put on their cups once again, Merry Christmas. Some of you aren't even old enough to know what I'm talking about. We're, that's, not the, that's not what the power is for. Verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Why? And you shall be witnesses to me. What is witness? It is the same idea of one who stands in a court and testifies of what they have seen and heard. To, to give testimony to the righteousness of that person. We are called to have the power of God to be those who witness to the earth of who Jesus is. Not just preaching at people and shoving Bible stuff down their throats. No, no, no. Our lives witnessing that Jesus lives in me and my words being unashamed to say, I know him. He is alive. He is real. So we sh the church's power is, we know it's not about obsessing over end times and dates and changing the government and all that, but the power is for making Jesus known. Another way we might be able to say what this power is about, it's populating heaven with earth or people. Let's say it this way. It's populating heaven with people. And it's populating people with heaven. So what can we do with this? As a church who wants to be restored to the church that Jesus started, not just church as usual and churches we've known it and what, whatever else, what can we do? I would say let's rely upon the Holy Spirit as a daily practice. Let's yield to the Holy Spirit moment by moment. And let's be being filled with the Holy Spirit on a regular basis. Rodney, give me that scripture from Ephesians. What's the, be, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts, Ephesians 4, 5, Ephesians 5 something. Just putting that out there in case you don't know what I'm talking about, about being filled. Somewhere in Ephesians 5. The, the original Greek is not just be filled, it's be being filled. Let's go to verse 9. Now when they had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood up uh, by them in white apparel, obviously these are angels, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go up into heaven. And they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room 
where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Jesus had told them, if you aren't aware, to tarry in Jerusalem until they be endued with power from on high. Those were in the, that's in the Gospel of Luke. So that's what they're doing. They're going back to Jerusalem, to an upper room where they were staying, to, to tarry, to wait until they be endued with power from on high. Which brings us to the fourth thing, which is prayer. Prayer. Person, purpose, power, prayer. What is the significance of prayer here? Prayer is the source of our power to do the purpose of the person. Prayer. If you call a prayer meeting in church today, it will be your most poorly attended meeting in the schedule. Some, some say, uh, stop this fascination with how many people are in your church and counting all the people who attend your, your church on Sunday. The true church is those who actually come to the prayer meeting. Now, I don't want to get into weird, you know, you're not a Christian unless you go to the prayer meeting or whatever, but my point is, the church, according to the one recorded historical testimony of how the church started, how did it start? In united corporate prayer. And if it started there, don't you think we should not assume to graduate from there? If what God started started in prayer, surely what God continues comes from a place of prayer. And man, have we ever we've lost that course. I don't think we, I think we, thank God for COVID, by the way, uh, that's a weird thing to say, but I think that took us back to saying, we've got to pray before we do any of this other stuff. Let's be in prayer. And while we haven't been doing corporate prayer meetings like we were during COVID, let's make sure in our community groups, we're giving time to waiting upon God for the filling of the spirit and for the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because the church, that's the power engine room of the church, is united corporate prayer. Let's read about it. Acts 1.14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Why is, a couple thoughts on prayer. The church was birthed, as I just said, in united corporate prayer. Prayer releases the will of heaven into earth. What's the purpose of the church? It's, it's to be the conduit of the kingdom, the vessel of the kingdom into the earth. Prayer is like the channel that allows that to happen. How do I say that? 1 John 14, 5, 14 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and it will be done for us by the, our Father in heaven. Prayer releases the will of heaven into the earth. And it's not just prayer, but it's praying together in agreement. Matthew 18, 19 says, Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for my Father in heaven. So what do we do with this? What's the significance? What can we take away from this? I'd say just for Border City Church, let's prioritize the value of community group specifically as we pray together. Let's remember when we're praying, we're not just ending our meeting with prayer because it's a good spiritual thing to do. Let's give time to it. Let's go into that moment wanting to grab a hold of what we know to be the will of God and to pray it out. 
Let's go into that moment. If some of you are weaker in your faith to say, one of the best ways to grow in my faith is to spend time praying with more mature Christians and hear how they pray. And let, it's like an osmosis effect. It kind of gets on you. You kind of learn how to relate to God. Let's go into those moments saying we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit as a local church. And, 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 and if we're not asking, then we're not going to see God do. But God responds to what we ask for in faith. So let's take, take the things that God has said and say them out in prayer, in faith, that we would see it done by our Father in heaven, because that's the confidence that we have. Amen? And then lastly is pattern. The idea that all the stuff that we just said, that there's the purpose, I mean, excuse me, a person, and he has given Jesus, and he's given us a purpose, and we need power to fulfill that purpose, and we find that power in the place of prayer. Well, there's a pattern in which all of this exists. The church is not just like an arbitrary, we decide how to do church however we want. I believe God does give us liberty to kind of express church in different ways, in different time periods, in different cultures. That's cool, but they're biblical pattern that are like banks to a river to make sure that that river goes in the right direction. And, uh, and order and design is, is of, the, of, of the biblical order and design is the context for the power and purpose of the person. So let's look at the church, namely, is to be led by human, albeit imperfect, God-appointed elders. This is so important that the Acts 1 ends with this particular thing. Jesus had chosen 12. One of them named Judas had committed suicide because of his betrayal of Jesus. Now there are only 11. They knew that there was an ordination of there being 12, a multiplicity of eldership in this first local church. And there was a slot that needed to be filled and that had to be put in place before the Holy Spirit would be poured out. There's pattern to how this is not... There, God has pattern in order and design. And so read this testimony with me, Acts 1.15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of the names was about 120. And he said, men and brothers, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. That's where when you're doing like middle school ministry, you know, like junior high, that's like the boys are like, oh, cool, gross, like he burst. Okay, so let's, let's not joke around about a guy's death. Verse 19, and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is field of blood. Listen to this verse. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Let another take his office. That word translated into English as office, episcope, is used interchangeably throughout the, Old, the New Testament to refer to elder. And here we find that the local church, Jesus had been the one, the, the, the only shepherd, in, of the flock, 
Now, when he ascends into heaven, he says, okay, not only are you guys all going to do the ministry, but I'm going to appoint some of you through which I'm going to continue shepherding the flock. If that doesn't make you shake in your boots, I don't know what's going to. And so in, in, in the order and design of God, there is the establishment here of eldership in the local church. Every single church that you see planted throughout this book that we're talking about, in the book of Acts, the pattern is that mainly we see Paul, the apostle, goes to cities, preaches the gospel, people receive Jesus, and then he goes back, spends time helping them to grow, and ordains elders in every local church. There's so much that we can take from that. Number one, that apparently you and I as Jesus' sheep are not supposed to just be sheep unto ourselves, wandering around us following Jesus and it's me and Jesus and I've just got this thing with me and Jesus but I don't really need the body. If there are elders who are appointed in Acts chapter 20, you can look it up right now, Paul says to the elders that God has appointed you to shepherd the flock of God to whom you will give an account for your shepherding of them. If there are elders, human imperfect leaders that have been established to lead the flock of God, not be Jesus to the flock of God, but through whom Jesus uses to help lead his people into the right place, if that's the pattern and design of God, who are we to say, well, I don't need that? If you're, the, ultimately, the conclusion I'm getting to is each of us need to be established in a local church. Why? Because each of us need to have spiritual leadership. And the cool thing about eldership is, and Rodney can agree, he's an elder with me in this church, is that every elder needs elders in their lives in the context of local church. It's not like there's somebody who's like above it all and not accountable anywhere. The elders are mutually accountable to one another, and everyone in the church needs to be following the eldership. Now, I'm not, let me be the first to say, <laughs> you're, you're following imperfect people. But check this out. Ephesians 6, God says through Paul, the apostle, to children, honor and obey your parents. Well, how many of you know when he says that, some of those parents are not totally honorable. Some of those parents are imperfect. And yet in that context, Paul still says that it may be well with you, that it might go well with you. It's the first commandment with a promise. So God gives authorities to lead nations. They're all, all authority has been appointed by God, Romans says. God gives parents to lead the family. God gives elders to lead the church. All of us need that. There's pattern, design, and order for this church that you and I are a part of, without which we will not see the fullness of the purpose or the power or ultimately the expression of the person. You follow? We want to be a people who honor and live in what we're talking about, the, the pattern of Jesus. The local church led by biblical design of eldership that is, as Minda put so wonderfully last week, that is the trellis that helps the church to grow to full maturity. 
Can a tomato plant uh, grow without a trellis? Can a rose bush grow without a trellis? Minimally. It's not that you can't be a Christian without the local church and without spiritual leadership, just that you're not going to grow fully. You're not going to be fully fruitful. We need each other. We need to be growing with each other, and this thing has a pattern called leadership that helps direct it by the grace of God, albeit, towards where it needs to go. It's his design. It's his order. Let us see it. Let us live in it. Let us not be like the typical American who hates authority. <laughs> all authority is bad. I, I, I get that we need to hold authority accountable and all those good things. It's not saying that, but we tend to not understand the value of authority either in our culture. And um, let's, let's not, let's not uh, become prey to, to that. So what now? I would say let's be planted. Be planted if, if Border City Church is your church, and that's who I'm speaking to here, be planted in Border City Church. Follow where we're going, and let's all help us to get there together. Be planted, follow. Uh, I, when that campus ministry, you know, after I got baptized with the Holy Spirit, I went home for the summer back to Atlanta where I lived with my parents. And I remember I spent time praying that summer. And I began to pray over the campus ministry that I was going to be going back to the next year. And as I did, I began to pray. And it was like God just opened my eyes to see a vision for the campus, a vision for what God wanted to do. My heart grew in faith that God was on the move. God wanted to do some things. And when I came back my sophomore year to be a part of that campus ministry, I came with faith. I threw myself into it. I was planted in that thing. Why? Because Don Williams, the campus pastor, was such an awesome guy. No, he was imperfect. It, but, but, but God had called us as a campus ministry to reach that campus ministry. And God did awesome things uh, throughout the next couple of years. And I want to say God wants to do things here in Detroit. We're not the only church, but, but we are a church that's been called by God. God wants to do stuff. Let's all not just kind of add the church as an appendage to our lives. Let's grab a hold of Jesus. Let's pray for his purposes, be seeking his purposes to be accomplished. And then let's gather together around Jesus to trust in those purposes and to trust together and to do in obedience the things that he tells us to do, that his kingdom would come. Can we pray?